Today is March the 16th, 2022. The upcoming 46th Annual Original Personal Computer Festival, otherwise known as TCF, the original and oldest computer festival in the world, is March the 19th, 2022. It is a virtual festival via Zoom, and the website is tcf-nj.org. The time for the festival is from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time. Welcome to the award-winning Personal Computer Show. I'm Hank Key, and my colleague is Joe King. Do you know who has your personal data? Do you know how Facebook, Google, Amazon, and the other big tech companies are using your personal data? Our website is www.pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Progressive Radio Network. PRN.LIVE streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on PRN.LIVE on the Internet. I'm eagerly looking forward to returning into the studio for live calls from you, the listening audience. In the meantime, however, you can leave us a message with your question or comment at hank at pcradioshow.org. DDR3 supplies are rapidly shrinking as consumers hold on to older hardware. Prices may rise up to 5% in the next quarter. TrendForce have noted a rapidly shrinking supply of consumer DDR3 RAM in the channel. That sounds precipitous, but its expectations are that we will see DDR3 prices rise by as much as 5% in the coming quarter. The impending price rises are a result of a pincer movement of sorts, according to the semiconductor industry researchers. On one side of the market, we see some suppliers speeding to withdraw from DDR production and rebalance their memory portfolio in favor of DDR5. The other side of the market is industrial buyers stockpiling for the fear of shortages around the corner. TrendForce has some other interesting information nuggets concerning DRAM makers' plans for DDR3. Most interestingly, it says that both Samsung and SK Hynix are scaling back with a view to declaring end-of-life for their DDR3 offerings. Micron has no such plans, though, and the source understands this significant DRAM maker will be producing DDR3 past 2026. Smaller DDR3 players in Taiwan and China aren't expected to have any capacity to add over the next couple of years, and some have spoken about DDR5 aspirations recently. Industrial buyers, rather than consumers, may be instrumental to assure continued DDR3 output and therefore availability to consumers. This older, slower memory standard is still a common choice in high-volume products like set-top box electronics, now often integrated into the TV and networking devices. A computer byte is 8 bits of information. On enterprise and military systems, there are 9 bits of information. The ninth bit is the parity bit. A parity bit is a check bit, which is added to a block of data for error detection purposes. It is used to validate the integrity of the data. 
The value of the parity bit is assigned either 0 or 1 that makes the number of 1s in the message block either even or odd, depending upon the type of parity. Parity check is suitable for single-bit error detection only. The two types of parity checking are even parity. Here, the total number of bits in the byte is made even. Then there's odd parity. Here, the total number of bits in the byte is made odd. When the original IBM PC was introduced in 1981, there was the parity bit in memory. In the early 1990s, I had healthy discussions with then Intel CEO Andy Grove when Intel dropped the parity bit for memory in the consumer personal computer. The reasoning is equipment is so reliable that memory failure in consumer electronics is rare. The marketing reason is dropping the parity bit results in 11% savings in memory expense. The technical reason given, however, is that in the case of home PCs, data integrity is often perceived to be of little importance. Today, that personal computer is the mainstay of small businesses where financial data is sensitive to data integrity. Intel is no longer disabling ECC memory support on its standard consumer processors, more specifically on the 12th generation core Alder Lake CPUs. However, you have to use a company's W680 platform to access the feature. For years, entry-level workstations had to rely on entry-level Xeon E-series processors to gain EC support to ensure reliable operation for high memory capacities. This was somewhat of a controversial limitation because those CPUs use the same silicon as core processors. Usually, the only difference other than ECC support was the use of a workstation-grade motherboard. Apparently, this ends with the Outer Lake and the W680 chip. The Intel 680 chipset brief clearly states that the latest core processors support ECC. Error correcting code, that's ECC memory, support minimizes errors and delivers a stable engineering and design platform. When paired with the right Intel core processors, you can get support for the Intel vPro platform, which give businesses the tools to manage and secure workstations. Intel affirms that 12th generation core processors support ECC when paired with W680 platforms. In fact, even enthusiast grade core i9-12900K gains ECC support when paired with a W680 chipset. Speaking of Intel's W680 chipset, it is necessary to note that this chipset lacks support for overclocking. Enabling ECC support on Intel core processors will be easier to get CPUs with ECC memory support. The Great Resignation Over 70% of workers now regret quitting their jobs. 80% of millennials, Generation Z workers, say it's okay to leave a new job in six months. The majority of U.S. workers who changed jobs during the Great Resignation actually regret quitting and even feel a sense of bias remorse, according to a new survey by the career website, The Muse. Seven out of ten workers, about 72%, admitted that they were surprised to learn that their new roles or companies were different from what they were led to believe during the interview process. 
According to the survey of more than 2,500 millennial and Gen Z job seekers by the Muse, they'll join a new company thinking it's their dream job, and then there's reality check. Minshu, who heads up the career website, explained that in some cases, job seekers don't ask the right questions during an interview process. Other times, it's because a recruiter misrepresented the role or was overly optimistic about the company in an effort to get them to join. In fairness, it's hard to assess the culture of a new company through Zoom. Prior to the pandemic, candidates would generally be able to visit the office, ultimately allowing them to better gauge a company's culture. Regardless, it's this really damaging phenomenon where people are brand new and they suddenly realize it's not at all as advertised. It used to be that if you started a new job and didn't like it, you needed to stay for one or two years to avoid black mark on your resume. But this seems to be really an interesting shift now in perceptions. About 8% of millennials and Gen Z workers say it's okay to leave a new job in six months if it's not advertised. About one in five job seekers even admitted they would quit within a month if it's not just as expected, and 41% say they would give it between two and six months. Just under half of job seekers, that's 48%, would actually try to get their old job back, according to the data. According to the Muse, the wave of employees quitting after a short period of time could fuel another great resignation, which refers to millions of Americans leaving their jobs during the COVID pandemic. To change this pattern, companies need to be more upfront because it could help retain workers who aren't totally satisfied, but could be over time. People are much more likely to accept the good and the bad and to show up as engaged and productive if they have entered a situation with their eyes wide open. Russia's space agency had been responding aggressively to the sanctions imposed by the West over its invasion of Ukraine. The Russian space agency, Roscosmos, suspended its Soyuz rocket launches from the European spaceport in French Guiana and suspended the supply of rocket engines to the United States. With Russia's space agency chief Dmitry Rogozin saying that the United States can go to orbit on their brooms. It also announced that Russia would no longer be doing joint scientific experiments with Germany on the International Space Station, which has been shielded from political struggles since it went into orbit 20 years ago. NASA says American aboard the International Space Station will come back on a Russian rocket. The sanctions imposed by the West seem to have heavily impacted the Russian economy. In a change of strategy, Dmitry Rogozin appealed to NASA for help in the wake of restrictive economic sanctions on his home country. The head of Russia's space program is apparently changing his tune. Dmitry Rogozin, the director general of Russian space agency Roscosmos, appealed to NASA for help in the wake of incredibly restrictive economic sanctions on his home country over the weekend. That message comes after weeks of spouting pro-Putin and anti-U.S. propaganda, 
not to mention belligerent threats about the International Space Station following the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Roscosmos sends written appeals to NASA, the Canadian Space Agency, and the European Space Agency with a demand to lift illegal sanctions from their enterprises in a tweet by Rogozin in Russian on Saturday. He added that this is in the interest of the International Space Station, which it's worth noting that he has threatened to destroy. This seems to represent a shift in strategy for Rogozin, who has been an ardent supporter of Russia's invasion of Ukraine since it began at the end of February. His words have resulted in widespread condemnation from the international space community, as well as a feud with NASA astronaut Scott Kelly. Despite his chest-thumping, Rogozin seems to be struggling with the invasion's consequences back home. He's even reportedly gone as far as forbidding Roscosmos employees from traveling abroad for fear of them fleeing for good. His latest tweets highlight the cracks in his persona, though he can posture all he wants, but the fact is that Putin's invasion of Ukraine is ruining the lives of not just the Ukrainian people, but those in Russia as well. NASA said Monday that NASA's astronaut Mark Van Hyle will return from the ISS later this month, which is March the 30th, two weeks from now. The space agency sought to reaffirm Monday that it's still working closely with the Russian space agency Roscosmos on the International Space Station, despite mounting geopolitical tensions. Van der Heij, who launched to the ISS in April of last year, is slated to make his return trip on March 30th. He'll land aboard the Russian Soyuz spacecraft in Kazakhstan, as is customary. NASA officials did not say there would be any significant changes to plans to get Van der Heij back to the United States after he lands. He'll travel home via a Gulfstream jet, just as other U.S. astronauts have before him. For nearly a decade, Russia's Soyuz vehicles have been the only means of getting astronauts to and from the space station. But that reliance ended after SpaceX debuted its crewed Dragon capsule in 2020 and the U.S. regained human spaceflight capabilities. The United States still has previously purchased seats on Russian vehicles for NASA astronauts. However, there are tentative agreements for U.S. astronauts to ride on Russian Soyuz vehicles and for Russian cosmonauts to ride with the SpaceX in the future. The manager of NASA's International Space Station program said, I can tell you for sure Mark is coming home on the Russian Soyuz spacecraft. His remarks came as Roscosmos chief Dmitry Rokosin made several fiery social media posts directed at the United States, including a heavily edited, partially animated video that appeared to threaten that Russian astronauts would abandon van der Heij in space. Rogozin has long been known to share outlandish statements on social media. Amid Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the subsequent sanctions from the United States and its allies, Rogozin has also grounded the launch of telecom satellites from UK-based startup OneWeb. 
He also pledged to no longer sell Russian-made rocket engines to the United States company, despite mounting tensions. NASA has attempted to convey that, behind the scenes, the United States and Russia continue to work together on ISS operations. Earlier Monday, Russian state news outlet TASS announced Vandahia would return on the Russian spacecraft as planned. The space station was designed to be interdependent. Each of the partners have different capabilities that they bring. It's not a process where one group can separate from the other. NASA was asked if it has contingency plans in place in case the Roscosmos-NASA relationship does deteriorate. At this time, there's no indication from our Russian partners that they want to do anything different. After two years, the return to work normalcy won't be the same. The last two years ushered in an unplanned experiment with a different way of working. Some 50 million Americans left their offices. Before the pandemic, in 2019, about 4% of employed people in the United States worked exclusively from home. By May 2020, that figure rose to 43%, according to the Gallup poll. Of course, that means a majority of the workforce continued working in person throughout the last two years. But among white-collar workers, the shift is stark. Before COVID, just 6% worked exclusively from home, which by May 2020 rose to 65%. Office occupancy across the country reached a pandemic peak of 40% in December, dipped because of Omicron variant, and then began to rise again, reaching 38% this month. Goldman Sachs, J.P. Morgan Chase, American Express, Meta, Microsoft, Ford Motors, and Citigroup are just a handful of the companies starting to bring some workers back. When over 700 people responded to the New York Times' recent questions about returning to their offices, as well as in interviews with more than two dozen of them, there were myriad reasons people listed for preferring work from home. On top of concerns about COVID safety, they mentioned sunlight, sweatpants, quality time with the kids, quality time with cats and the dogs, more hours to read and run, space to hide the angst of a crummy day or year, but the most strongly argued was about workplace culture. But some managers might revive old notions about employee performance and develop a bias against those who can't spend as much time in the office. And some employees, buoyed by the labor shortage, are holding their work from home ground, with some two-thirds of remote workers reluctant to return to work in the office. Two national surveys found that since the onset of the pandemic, there's been a reduction in the percentage of employees who say that working long hours or being available beyond business hours is important to be successful at their organizations. We had a nationwide experiment in telecommuting. Studies of 10,000 office workers conducted last year by Future Forum, a research group backed by Slack, suggest that women and people of color were more likely to see working remotely as beneficial than their white male colleagues in the United States. 86% of Hispanic and 81% of black knowledge workers, those who do non-manual work, said that they preferred hybrid or remote work compared with 75% of white knowledge workers. And globally, 
50% of working mothers who participate in the studies reporting wanting to work remotely most or all the time, compared with 43% of fathers. A sense of belonging at work increased for 24% of black knowledge workers surveyed, compared with 5% of white knowledge workers since May of 2021. Others, especially managers, argue that culture building is tougher to do virtually. Some people mourn that their bonding conversations with teammates or simply to say that remote work can get lonely. But managers pressing for return are finding themselves up against those employees attached to their newfound sense of comfort. PricewaterhouseCoopers announced that some 40,000 of its employees would never be required to return to the office. Last month, Dow Jones told employees that they would have more flexibility than many of their industry peers, with team leaders deciding how often their employees need to be in the office. During the past two years, the lunchtime economy in business districts were taking a major hit as many office workers were working from home. With return to work normalcy in the office, many coffee shops and lunch counters could end up closing with the risk that previously lucrative business districts will be almost deserted. Budget computers are often equipped with low mass storage. If an SD or micro SD port is available, how reliable is it to use that for mass storage? The short answer is yes. But there are genuine quality SD cards and there are cheap budget throwaway SD cards. The fastest SD memory card that is available in the market is the UHS-2 cards. These cards possess the ability to write and read the data at a rate of 312 megabytes per second, unlike the other cards. These cards would not take a lot of time to transfer the data. There have been tales of problems with SD cards that plague us to this day. It's way less severe than they were in the beginning, but pronounced enough that you'll see people encounter them every now and then. Not everyone encounters SD card problems. An SD card is hard to beat in terms of power consumption, as USB flash drives aren't known for being low-powered optimized, and neither are USB hubs, which you'll notice if you check how warm a USB hub can get after passing a relatively low amount of USB packets. Many still want to add an SD card for the independent additional storage that it brings. The slot is there, and if you have a card to spare, why not use it? Why do cards still fail, though? First of all, fake and cheap cards ruin the fun for everyone. Micro SD card clones are ever-present and hard to distinguish from legitimately made cards, but certainly not subject to the same quality standards. Cheap cards share the low-quality standards part but at least you can recognize a no-name card by looking at it. Like a majority of storage devices nowadays, an SD card has two separate entities inside, controller and flash memory. The controller has some flash management busy work to do whenever it gets sent some data to write, but doing it on the spot would be time-consuming, delaying subsequent write operations, and possibly wasteful. Subsequently, the SD card controller has to have a small piece of cache memory and keep a list of operations that are yet to be performed but haven't been. This is the rationale behind shutting down your computer system safely. 
If you don't give your SD card a bit of time, and maybe even an automated advance notification from the operating system, there might be pending write operations that will never get completed, resulting in garbled storage when you next power up the card. Can you rely on an SD card even if unsafe shutdowns happen every now and then? My experience says, yes. The purchase of genuine high-capacity SD and micro SD cards doesn't really break the bank anymore. An SD card is a complex, highly integrated device with the controller being a small-purpose, built CPU. Presenting Benjamin Rockwell with the IT Pro Series, Building Your Brand on LinkedIn, Part 2 of 3. This is Benjamin Rockwell, and now it's time to get down to business. This is where we talk about you, technology, and yes, the workplace. Right now, we're in the middle of a three-part series in regards to building your brand on LinkedIn. Now, last week, we talked about reconsidering your profile photo, customizing your LinkedIn profile, using your description to sell yourself, and really setting everything up for you to approach LinkedIn like a living resume. Now... What I want you to do is I want you to reach out. I want you to connect up to all of the different people that you can. We're going to do this in a couple of different directions. For starters, what I want you to do is I want you to, yes, go through and scour previous people you've worked with. I want you to personalize your invitations to connect up to these people. Now, some of them you don't necessarily have to personalize, but it is kind of that added touch. Everybody that you've worked with in the past is a potential, not only former coworker, but future coworker. Now, at the same time, I want you to also consider accepting all connection requests. Yeah, there was that guy, Fred. Fred was kind of annoying and, you know, not quite the coworker that you would have liked. But you know what? He's reaching out. And you know what? Maybe he had other problems going on in his life. So we've got to forgive him for that. We've got to be able to move on, especially since Fred, you know, he may be connected enough at some point in the future to offer us a brand new job. So let's not dismiss Fred all that quickly. So this is this is really key. Again, you're going to reach out and you're going to let people reach out to you. Maybe Fred wants to apologize. You know, whatever it is. Now, you have a limited amount of skills that you can leverage that you can have on LinkedIn. Now, I want you to feel free to build that up. But at a certain point, you're going to start noticing You know, I have this particular skill. I want to fit it in. Oh, I can't fit it in. So you need to start looking through and you look through once you've maxed out and you go, I'm going to look through and find the five weakest skills that I have up here. Not necessarily weak in in the sense of, uh, you know what, I'm I'm weak at this, but more of weak in the sense that I am looking for this particular type of job, and this doesn't really build up my particular direction here, especially since I've only got one person who's uh, who's advocated that I'm, uh, I'm really good at driving forklifts, and I'm in IT. 
All right. So, you know, driving forklifts really doesn't belong in my skill set. So we go through and we and we need to be strategic about this. We need to plan ahead and go, this is going to help me get an IT job. This is not going to help me get an IT job. Now, we talked last time about your profile photo. This is your picture. This is your smiling face that doesn't include, yeah, that that previous, you know, boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever it is. It's just yourself in a professional photo. But I also want you to really get creative with your cover photo. I want your cover photo to not necessarily represent your picture, your face, but kind of your world. So in my case, I have uh, I have my name repeated up there. I have my target title, but I have a I have kind of this abstract picture that that shows a lot of different technological kinds of items, uh, like a dashboard with a briefcase and a calculator and a pen and targets and arrows and stuff like that, and pie charts and clocks and and it kind of represents a bigger whole picture of. I deal with a lot of different pieces of technology and it's not pigeonholing me into one particular section. It's, it's giving strength across the board. Now you're going to go through and you're going to optimize your entire profile for searches. And yes, you know, I, I just talked about uh, this imagery that we're utilizing and imagery is always going to be a part of our plan. Imagery is something that holds people there. But the text, what is in our profile, is what's going to draw them in when they're searching. So you want to make sure that you have all of the top highlighted items for your position. They are all included in there. Now, you've got this resume here, this digital resume, and it's not something that you have to limit as much as you did before. You can add in some additional lines, some additional information, but you want to make sure that this is all this is all driven to draw people in, to have them ask questions of you. This is, this is a chance for you to put out a movie trailer, not the entire movie. This is your chance to present information that says, hey, check this person out a little bit more. Not, hey, this is his entire life. This is her entire resume for the last 50 years and every single edit and gone through. And Yeah, you, you, you want to be careful. You want to be strategic about this and optimize it for people who are searching the internet, who are searching LinkedIn, who are searching for someone with your exact skill qualifications. Next week, I'm going to be talking about connections, how often you connect up, but I'm also going to talk about some of the different things that you're going to do when you're connecting up. There's a lot more to this beyond what I'm going to be talking about, but hopefully this gives you a start. This is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank. Thank you, Benjamin. The right to repair relates to the anti-consumerist actions of certain companies and the proposed legislation against these practices that would give consumers the choice of where they repair their device. The main goals of the right to repair movement are as follows. Give everyone fair access to documentation, manuals, schematics, and software updates. 
Make the necessary parts and tools available to third parties, repair centers, and also the consumer. Allow the user to unlock and modify device. This would allow the owner to install their preferred software. Design devices so that repairs can be made relatively easy. Legislation to pass right to repair laws in the United States at the state as well as the federal level stretches out over a very long period of time. France has taken a different approach. In France, the law requires manufacturers of certain electronic devices, including cell phones and laptops, to score each of their products based on how easily repairable it is and make that score along with that data that went into it available to consumers at point of sale. France's Repairability Index is a score out of 10 telling consumers how fixable a product is based on five criteria. Ease of disassembly, availability of repair manuals, spare parts availability, spare parts pricing, and device-specific categories. Companies assign their products points within each of those five categories based on a number of sub-criteria laid out in a worksheet. The law requires that both the overall score and the underlying worksheet be published for French consumers. For example, all of the worksheets Apple has completed for devices sold in France can be found on its French website. Apple, Microsoft, and Google all receive poor grades on repairability report card, and laptops and smartphones made by Apple, Microsoft, and Google are considerably less repair-friendly than those made by competitors Asus, Dell, and Motorola, according to a new report. The data to back up comes from an unusual source, the companies themselves. The report released by the U.S. Public Research Interest Group's Education Fund draws on data companies are now releasing in France to comply with the government's World First Repairability Index Law which went into effect last year. To make that information more accessible to Americans, U.S. Public Research Interest Group, which is PRIG, with assistance from the repair guide site iFixit, compiled French repair scores for 187 laptops and phones produced by 10 major U.S. manufacturers. Rather than simply regurgitate the French scores in English, the PRIG, which runs a right-to-repair advocacy program, decided to augment them by penalizing companies that fight against legislation that would facilitate independent repair. The result is a hybrid score that shows how fixable companies' products are and whether the company is actively opposing consumers' right to fix them. Companies were penalized for lobbying against right-to-repair laws. If a company actively lobbies or is part of a coalition lobbying effort to prevent access to parts, service information, and repair tools that indicates a hostile attitude towards repair choice. According to Nathan Proctor, who leads the U.S. Public Research Interest Group, that's again the PRIG, if you want to ensure your product is fixable now and into the future, you should consider the manufacturer's approach to the repair ecosystem. The PIRG group calculated an overall repair score for each of the companies it looked at 
and it did so by averaging the French repairability indexes for that company's products with a subscore for ease of disassembly, a criteria Proctor felt should be given additional weight since being able to physically take apart a device is the most permanent and universal aspect of its repairability. Finally, the USPRIG group deducted a point from the company's overall score if it has a public record of lobbying against U.S. right-to-repair bills, plus another quarter point if it's a member of either TechNet or the Consumer Technology Association, two trade associations that lobby against independent repair. Out of the 10 companies PRIG ranked, Apple received the worst grades with the 12 fairly recent MacBook Air and Pro models averaging 3.16 out of 10 points and 20 iPhone models dating back to the iPhone 7 receiving just 2.75 out of 10 points. Microsoft fared only slightly better on laptops, averaging 4.6 points for the nine recent Surface laptops that PIRG scored, while Google also received low marks for the Pixel 4a, 6, and 6 Pro smartphones, which scored 4.64 out of 10 on average. Dell and Asus rose at the top of the list for repairable laptops. The 36 Dell and 22 Asus laptops the PIRG scored lists that include mostly the company's current models as of December and January, average 7.81 and 7.61 points respectively. Motorola performed comparably on the smartphone front, receiving 7.77 out of 10 points across 18 phones. While these scores reflect both device repairability and corporate lobbying practices, for which all companies except for Acer and Motorola lost some points. Consumers who are just interested in how physically fixable a company's products can find that information in the report as well. For some companies, the two scores mirror one another closely. Apple's laptops, for instance, received an average disassembly rating of 3.24, while Dell cleaned up in this category, averaging 9.55 out of 10 points. A notable outlier is Microsoft. Its computer scored fairly well on ease of disassembly at 7.34, but Microsoft devices lost points in its overall French repair score due to lack of access to spare parts and repair documentation. The company lost additional points in the PIRG scoring for its history of lobbying against repair legislation. While neither Apple nor Google commented on the report, each sent a statement reiterating their commitment to making long-lasting repairable products. Microsoft's spokesperson said, The fact that repairability index scores are low does not mean that Surface products are not durable or reliable or cannot be repaired. And that's true, by the way. We are committed to designing our products to deliver what customers need and want in a premium device, and that includes increasing repairability while balancing other factors such as functionality, performance, security, and safety. The report offers a handy, if high-level guide for consumers looking to buy more repairable devices and align their purchasing decisions with their values. 
early data from France suggests that the repair index could have a big impact. A poll commissioned last year by Samsung found that 86% of French consumers say their purchasing decisions likely will be impacted by these scores going forward. The report is high-level, but handy. That could sway some companies to change their practices. Perhaps taking note of its survey results, Samsung has been quietly working to boost its smartphone repair scores by releasing repair manuals in French. Beyond France, other recent campaigns have also demonstrated the power of putting public spotlight on tech companies' repair policies. Last year, Microsoft committed to making its devices more repairable following a shareholder resolution. Shortly thereafter, Apple announced a self-service repair program following years of pressure from independent repair advocates and more recent pressure from shareholders. Perhaps a report that ranks companies against their peers based on their own self-reported data will motivate some to step up their efforts. The index assesses five criteria: documentation, disassembly, availability of spare parts, price of spare parts, product-specific aspects. While this index is a key milestone for the right to repair in Europe, it isn't without limitations. From how easy it is to obtain a good grade to self-declare scores by manufacturers and no sanctions until 2022. It comes with challenges that are important to acknowledge and discuss. The index applies to smartphones, laptops, televisions, washing machines, and lawnmowers. The objective is to enable consumers to have information on repairability of products. The report itself is only relative to manufacturers and equipment sold in France. In the United States, equipment models may vary with different countries. In the United States, the Freedom to Repair Act is pending before Congress. The legislation, if passed, would eliminate penalties in the 1998 Digital Millennium Copyright Act that makes it a crime to circumvent copyright on electronics for the purpose of repair. It would also require manufacturers to make repair manuals and replacement parts available to third-party entities. As technology advances, manufacturers have increasingly made repair difficult, if not impossible, to be performed by the owner of the machine or third-party repair shops, thus creating a near monopoly in the market and eliminating competitive pricing. Currently, many car makers hold information and parts as proprietary, choosing only to release them to authorized dealers, thus driving up repair costs. Manufacturers restricting the flow of information and replacement parts to third-party shops ultimately hurts the consumer right in the wallet. If only one company, the manufacturer, can provide repairs and replacement parts, then that company alone gets to set the price. Especially now as our nation economy pulls itself out of COVID-19 shutdown, this legislation is likely to be a much-needed boon to the economy by preserving the competitive marketplace for repair services and parts. Hobbyists and those who like to go to the do-it-yourself route for repairing cars or electronic devices should be able to access parts, tools, and manuals for a reasonable price. Consumers who choose to pay for repair services 
should do so because they've chosen to pay for quality service, not because tools, techniques, and schematics are being held for ransom. It is unethical for manufacturers to continue to make it more difficult for consumers to keep products in good working order. Presenting Technology Chatter with Benjamin Rockwell and Marty Winston, Computer Security Game That Shouldn't Be. And now it's the time for the Computer Security Game Show with our host, Scottish Lord Martin Winston. Good man. Oh, you're so, so bizarre. <laughs> uh, I, you know, it was, uh, you said the computer security game show, and I just, I figured I had to do it like the, like an intro there, and I had well, to build I, it I, up, I, so, I yeah. And now here's our hostess, nobody. What <laughs> <laughs> uh, what strikes me as bizarre. Yeah. The many interpretations of second, third, fourth, fifth factor authentication. Fifth factor? No, no, it's too simple. Oh, twelve, yeah, twelve, twelve factor. Fine. Yes. <laughs> yeah, right. we, mean, we we can't go that simple anymore. We've got to, you know, we've got to have seventeen million different questions and stare into the camera where you put your fingerprint on the lens, right? Is that, yes, yes. <laughs> and, and now answer this question: Who is your favorite historical character who is not yet born? <laughs> <laughs> Yes. How do you remove the seeds from an egg? <laughs> <laughs> they and, they have been getting bizarre. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, do you have a key fob? What color is it? Yeah. Doesn't matter. Plug it into USB. I'm sorry. You don't fit our port. This <laughs> computer will self-destruct in a week and a half. Sure. <laughs> Click on a uh, click on the images of pin oak trees. Do not confuse them with with red oak trees. I'm like, what? I I've I've got no clue here. Well, I got it wrong. I I clicked on Pinocchio. <laughs> <laughs> I've got hey, no strings. You guys in security. What are you trying to do? I know. We'll keep anybody from ever using their computers. <laughs> yeah. I, I, you know, I, I have, you know, some of the work that I do is related to security and I, you're right. I am, I am starting to get frustrated with some of the crazy things that they're having us do. Connect dot A to line B and then wonder why you can't erase it from your screen. Yeah. Turn on your camera. Now, yeah. pat your head and rub your tummy at the same time <laughs> while running your left foot in a counterclockwise manner. Don't turn around. You've been captured. Y yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there are there are so many different things. Where do you think they're going with this, Marty? Why do you think they're going in these different directions? Job security for consulting uh, people and for uh, professional security experts like you. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. Yeah, I mean, if, but, if there weren't all the security measures, right? Yeah. Who who could possibly crack into your system? I'm well, sorry, I, I can't log into my own system now. Uh, there you go. I can't log into mine either. Am I an admin? And is my name admin? And is my uh, password blank? Or is my name blank? And my password admin? I can never remember. <laughs> <laughs> My mind is blank. That's the problem here. Yeah. Uh, 
I, I spell password with an at sign, and I think that's just cool. <laughs> <laughs> so where do you see us going? Where do you think all of this security is going to wind us up with other than major headaches? I believe we have some options in the things we're already doing customarily. Mm -hmm. Who could possibly be sitting at your computer and have your phone? Yeah. Right? Usually me. Right. So if you got Bluetooth or Wi-Fi or anything else and you can recognize the uh, the phone, the MAC address of your phone on the network, then mm -hmm. it's you. Yeah. You want to make sure it's you. I, I have a I have a program for my uh, so I only have it plugged into my Mac. But when I have I have a smartwatch, I've got a citizen uh, CZ smart. Uh, and when it is within uh, just a matter of I have to have my hands as close as the keyboard and my watch. It detects my watch that close uh, when it detects there, then it will unlock well, that, that, that's, that's not terrible. No. But look, your computer costs, what, a couple of grand? Yeah. And what did your car cost? And you can just walk up to your car with your key fob and touch it and you're in. Yes. <laughs> yeah, very true. Yeah. So, look, why doesn't the computer recognize my key fob? Sure. Yeah, you know what? They, they have sold key fobs for years for computers and it just hasn't, hasn't caught on. But it should it, 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 sh it that should be an well, easy I don't, one. I don't need. I shouldn't need a second key fob if if I'm the uh, only recognize the, with the, the car. Right yeah, now. yeah. You know, or or you know some multi-layer combination of things like mm -hmm. if it's my size, if it smells like me, you know, if, <laughs> if it has Smell my key fob, my watch, and 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 my mobile, if it can read my headset, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. then who else could it be? Right. Right. So. Why am I having to answer, you know, who was my favorite high school teacher? Yeah. High school was 60 years ago, people. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have to remember that stuff. You know, yeah. if, why are you making me remember? I mean, for years where it asked mother's maiden name. Mm -hmm. I have kind of a science fiction term. I always fill in there because nobody needs to know my mother's maiden name. Yes. So and that's actually been my trick for uh, a couple of decades now. I answer. I have set answers for all of those. Yeah. And none of them are accurate. Good. And that's. Now you it, still it, have it, to remember them. I mean, remembering the lie you told can be just as grueling. Yes. Yeah. It, but no. but that is one of the few areas I lie. So you know, I. Yeah. I, 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 I will tell you for passwords. I love Dashlane. I bought premium Dashlane. It fills it in for me most of the time. Sometimes Google steps all over it, but most of the time Dashlane takes it. Very um, cool. You know, it, it's stuff. Thank you, Ben, and thank you, Marty. The upcoming 46th Annual Original Personal Computer Festival, otherwise known as TCF, the original and oldest computer festival in the world is March the 19th, 2022. It is a virtual festival via Zoom, and the website is tcf-nj.org. The time for the festival is from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time, and the keynote speaker is Bob Kopp, Disrupting Environmental Climate Changing Using Technology, and he is the co-author of the UN 
World Climate Change Report. He is from the Rutgers Institute for Earth, Ocean, and Atmospheric Sciences. Saturday, March the 19th, 2022. The time is from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time. And the website is tcf-nj.org. Public Service Announcements Computer Club Meetings in the New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut Tri-State Region Since most club meetings are online, you are most welcome to attend any of the online meetings. Log on to the club website for more information on Remote Meeting ID. The Brookdale Computer Users Group has a presentation, How Our Most Popular Games Are Affected by Computers and Artificial Intelligence. They meet Thursday, March the 24th. Meeting time is 6.45 p.m. Virtual meeting via Zoom. Their website is bcug.com. The Amateur Computer Group of New Jersey meets Friday, April 1st. Meeting time is 8 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Jitsi. Website is acgnj.org. Westchester PC Users Group has a presentation on cyber hygiene, Thursday, April the 7th. Meeting time is 7 p.m., online virtual meeting via Zoom, and their website is wpcug.org. The Long Island Macintosh Users Group meets Friday, April the 8th. Meeting time is 7 p.m., online virtual meeting via Zoom. Their website is limac.org. King's Byte Computer Club meets Tuesday, April the 12th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. at the Park Plaza Restaurant. Location is 220 Cadman Plaza West in Brooklyn. The phone number to confirm is 347-278-7320. The New York Amateur Computer Club has a presentation on Audacity, an open-source audio editing app. Thursday, April the 14th, meeting time is 7 p.m., online virtual meeting via Zoom, and the website is nyacc.org. Just a reminder that Daylight Saving Times begins Sunday, March the 13th, and ends Sunday, November the 6th. Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on prn.live, streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the Internet. If you have any questions for us, just send us an email addressed to hank at pcradioshow.org. In the meantime, stay in touch and remember to do regular backups. I'm Hank Key, and on behalf of Joe King, Michael Horowitz, Benjamin Rockwell and Marty Winston, we thank you for listening. Stay safe and healthy until we meet again, same time, same station next week.